Well, if you've got a Bible, you want to turn this morning to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning. As many of you likely know, we're in a series on Sunday mornings and we're looking at the life of Peter. And looking at Peter is really interesting in a lot of ways because Peter's a dynamic character on the pages of the New Testament. He comes and he shows us what it looks like to authentically follow Jesus in this world and in our life. Each week, what we've tried to do is put ourselves in the shoes of Peter, and we've tried to see how Jesus relates to Peter in his faithlessness and in his failures. And by doing this, we've seen how Jesus relates to us in our faithlessness and in our failures, and also in our faithfulness and in our successes. And we should really be grateful for these honest and sometimes unflattering accounts that we get in the Gospels of Peter's lives. Because we see ourselves in Peter, and we get the chance to see how Jesus relates to people like us through Peter's life. Without Peter, the Gospels would be less human and less dimensioned. He really adds a lot in the pages of the New Testament. And this morning, we get to appoint an event in Peter's life that is likely one of his most well-known moments. It's an event in the life of Peter that everyone anticipates. And we're picking back up this morning where we left off last week. It's still the night before Jesus would be crucified. It's Thursday night of this week that we're going to be celebrating. Jesus has just finished eating his last meal with his disciples. He tells his disciples about what's going to happen to him and that they'll all desert him within a matter of hours. And upon hearing this, remember last week, Peter promises that even if he's got to die with Jesus, he'll never deny him. Well, from there, Jesus moves on to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he struggles personally with what's about to happen to him as he is arrested and tried and crucified. And it's worth noting, even on the outset, that in the Garden, Jesus' disciples let him down. Um, Remember, they can't stay awake and pray with him like they've been asked to. Well, towards the end of Jesus' time in Gethsemane, a mob from the high priest shows up. And they're searching for Jesus. And Judas is leading this mob. And he finds Jesus and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And the soldiers and the servants that make up this mob, they take Jesus by force and they take him to the high priest's house so that they can falsely accuse Jesus and send him to die. And it's against this backdrop that we enter this story this morning. Peter is in the midst of lots of pressure, and he gets to see what's really inside. And it's one of the most tragic moments of Peter's life. One commentator said this, No disciple was placed higher than Peter, and almost no disciple fell lower. No one protested loyalty more insistently And yet our whole gospel and present story teaches us no one denied Jesus more consistently. So remember a few hours ago in the story, Peter told Jesus, even if I've got to die with you, I'm not going to deny you. That's who Peter thought he was. And now we get a chance to see who Peter really was. So you follow along with me as we read from Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. Then the mob seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with Jesus. 
But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word for us, given to us because he loves us and cares for us. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for this story because it is a story of hope for us. A story of hope for broken people. A story of hope for folks that oftentimes turn our back on you. And we pray this morning that we would experience that hope. That we would experience your deep forgiveness as you look to us with eyes of love. We pray that we would see that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few months ago, my family and I went to see the movie Wonder. And it's a a great movie based on the best-selling novel, which is about a young boy named August Pullman, who was born with facial differences. He's got facial differences. And the movie is all about August. He goes by the name Augie in the movie, and he's entering into a mainstream elementary school during fifth grade. And the movie's all about the anxiety and the fear that he and his family feel about him entering elementary school with these physical differences that he has. Well, Augie enters into school, and luckily, he makes a good friend named Jack in the movie. And Augie and Jack, they develop a warm friendship through the movie. And the friendship is really exactly what Augie needs as he enters this new school. It helps him feel less alone. It it helps him feel less afraid. It helps him feel like he belongs. Well, Jack is constantly taking criticism from the other kids at school for being Augie's friend. Because it's not cool to be Augie's friend because he's got these facial differences. And you can tell that it's hard for Jack to be friends with Augie sometimes. He's really got to push against the more popular kids at school who don't want him to be friends with Augie. And well, there's a scene in the movie... And it's during Halloween, and everyone in the school is dressed up in costume. And Augie says that he looks forward to this day all year long because it's the one day where he gets to cover his face with a mask and just be like a normal kid. The one day where everyone's the same. And he's so excited to go to school that day, and he goes to school, and he gets to the classroom, and he walks into the room without anyone recognizing who he is because he's wearing a mask. And he overhears a conversation between Jack and the rest of the class. And the cooler kids in the class at this time are making fun of Augie. And his facial differences out loud. They don't know that Augie's in the same room able to hear them behind a mask. And the worst part of the scene happens when the cooler kids turn to Jack and ask him why he's friends with Augie. And Jack crumbles under the pressure and he says that he's not really friends with Augie. He says that he doesn't even really like him. He's just hanging out with him because the principal made him. And it's a really heartbreaking scene because under Augie's mask, he is crying and he runs out of the classroom in disbelief because he thought Jack was really his friend. Jack was the thing that made school sustainable for Augie. And even though that was true, they were friends, it was more beneficial in that moment for Jack to deny that he knew Augie altogether. 
It was, it was more beneficial in that moment to go along with the crowd, to deny their relationship, to pretend like they weren't friends. And I want to suggest this morning that it's a very similar scene to what we see in our passage from Peter this morning. When following Jesus begins to get tough, when it's no longer convenient to follow him, when it's no longer beneficial to associate with Jesus, what we see is Peter pretend like he doesn't even know him. Peter disassociates himself from Jesus altogether. And I'm willing to bet this morning that we can put ourselves in Peter's shoes. We know what it feels like to distance ourselves from Jesus. We know what it's like for uh, it to be more convenient for us to deny our relationship with him than to confess that relationship. It happens when we get tough questions from friends about our beliefs on certain issues. It happens we feel it when our families wonder why we make certain decisions with our time or with our money. We experience it when we just want to do what feels good in the moment. When it's easier to disassociate from Jesus so that we can move headlong into our own desires. We know what it's like to pretend that we don't know Christ. And even though we don't condone Peter's actions in this passage, we can understand him. We can resonate with him, with what he's feeling, because we've often felt the same pressure in our lives when it comes to associating with Jesus. We know what it's like not to be as strong as we thought. This morning, we're going to look at this account under three headings. First, we're going to see a pressure-packed context. Second, we're going to see a disciple's denial. And third, we're going to see the beginning of restoration. It follows along with the flow of the passage, and I think I need to say this at least every once in a while. Our hope each week here at Trinity Grace is that as we walk away from this place, you will understand the scriptures more clearly. And so we're going to follow along with this passage in that order this morning. First, let's take a look at this pressure-packed context, okay? We pick up in the story with Jesus having been arrested and led away to the high priest's house for questioning, in hopes that they'll be able to send Jesus to his death, which actually happens on Good Friday. And as Jesus is being led away to the high priest's house, we see in verse 54 that Peter is following this mob in the flow of events from a distance. No longer was Peter directly by Christ's side, but he's still following Jesus, likely struggling to piece together what is happening. He's following from a distance, perhaps out of fear, Perhaps he's following at a distance out of curiosity to see what's going to happen. Perhaps out of a timid attempt to be by Christ's side. Maybe he still thinks that he can be strong when the opportunity presents itself. The Gospel of Matthew says that Peter was following because he was curious to see the outcome of what was going to happen. Matthew uses the phrase to see the end. Peter wanted to see the end. So Peter follows Jesus all the way to the courtyard of the high priest's house. And in this culture, large homes of important people had courtyards in them where servants would congregate. And it's what we see in our passage this morning. The mob of soldiers and the servants that have just brought Jesus to the high priest's house are kindling a fire in the courtyard. They're looking to keep warm on this cool April evening. And this is the context that Peter finds himself in. Just a few hours earlier, remember, he was having dinner with Jesus. Jesus was washing Peter's feet. He was hearing Christ teach. 
And now he's in the courtyard of the high priest, surrounded by the mob that has just arrested Jesus. And Peter's mind must have been reeling. I mean, he must have been struggling to understand exactly what was happening. Remember, he didn't have the hindsight that we have now. He was simply living this ordeal in real time, unable to understand lots of what was going on. And it was this pressure-packed situation that Peter found himself in. And Peter was facing pressure from lots of different places, both from within and from without. He was facing pressure from within. He wasn't sure what was happening. Following Jesus wasn't working out like he had thought. He, he was likely experiencing doubt about who Jesus was. Experiencing disappointment because his dreams of glory were not coming true. Jesus seemed to have lost control. It all looked over from Peter's vantage point. And Peter was no longer the self-confident man that we saw just a few hours ago. But it's not only internal pressure, the questions that he has inside that are uh, coming in on him. Peter's also experiencing external pressure too. Peter's surrounded by a group that wants to put an end to Jesus. It's not a group that can live with Jesus. It's not an ambivalent group. It's a group that is actively hostile to Jesus and his teachings and want to see them stop. And even though Peter is an entire culture and 2,000 years removed from us, I think we can still understand something of this pressure-packed context that Peter experiences. Because we live in what many call a post-Christian culture. A context that doesn't understand Jesus and oftentimes, if we're honest, actively seeks to put an end to him. To put an end to him and his teachings. A context where it's easier to follow Jesus from a distance and not up close. Like Peter, we follow Jesus with a certain degree of fear in our lives, I think. We're often scared of what people will think if they find out we follow Christ. And it shows up in the way that we sometimes qualify our faith in Jesus. Saying something like, yeah, I follow Jesus, but I'm not crazy. Or I follow Jesus, but I went to college. I'm not anti-intellectual, mind you. Or I follow Jesus, but I'm not puritanical. I'm not a prude, but I follow Jesus. And for some of us, it's really easy to follow Jesus at a distance when it comes to unpopular truths. What the Bible says about hell or sexuality and marriage or the exclusive claims of Christ. These teachings can make us uncomfortable in our cultural context and we're prone to deny our connection with Jesus when these topics are brought up. Like Peter, we often find ourselves in a pressure-packed context. In situations where it's easier for us to follow Jesus from a distance. Where we look around and just hope that no one notices that we're even associated with him. This is where Peter finds himself on this cool April evening 2,000 years ago. Pressure is coming from within. It's coming from without. And now we're going to turn and see where this pressure leads Peter. And oftentimes where it leads us too. Let's spend a few minutes looking at a disciple's denial. Well, the pressure that surrounds Peter internally and externally begins to build as the mob around the fire begins to take notice of who he is. We we see the crowd starting to catch on to Peter beginning in verse 56, where a servant girl gets a closer look at Peter's face as it's illuminated by the fire. And the girl stares for a minute and she identifies Peter. And then she levels an accusation saying, this man also was with Jesus. 
And it's a little servant girl who asks this first question. That's important to note. Not a ruler, not a priest. When Peter had promised never to deny Jesus a few hours earlier, he likely had a grander situation in mind. He likely thought that he was going to be confessing Jesus before an angry mob or before the religious council or before some heroic setting. He never thought of a trial in trivial circumstances before a servant girl. But isn't that where most of our trials and tests oftentimes happen in life? I mean, they they happen in the mundane, trivial aspects of our lives more often than not. Not with guns pointed at our chest, but in the office or at home or on vacation. These are the places that we live out our discipleship. Well, Peter experiences this accusation and he denies it in verse 57. He says, woman, I do not know him. And Peter's first denial is a strong one. He's saying that he doesn't know Jesus. And it's similar to when someone was banned from the synagogue in that day and age. When someone was banned from the synagogue, it was said to that person, we no longer know you. In other words, we have nothing to do with you anymore. And that's Peter's first denial of Jesus before a servant girl. But the denials aren't over. In verse 58, it says, after a little while passed, someone else saw Peter and they recognized him saying, you're also one of them. And this accusation is trying to tie Peter into the community that Jesus created. They recognized Peter as one of the 12 disciples, one of a group. And Peter quickly denies it saying, man, I'm not. The pressure here is heating up for Peter, and he's coming to realize that he's not as strong as he once thought he was. It's no longer beneficial for Peter to follow Jesus, to to identify himself with him. So under these accusations, Peter denies knowing Jesus, and he denies being a part of his community. An interesting question is, how often do we do that ourselves? Love Jesus, but we don't love the church. We love Jesus, but we could do without some of the awkward folks that we rub shoulders with on Sunday morning. And we disassociate ourselves with his body. And we can't do that. If we're going to have the head, we've got to have the body along with it. But his denials aren't over yet. Pick back up in, in in verse 59. After about an hour has passed, another person looks at Peter and insists, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. Now this is interesting. The more Peter verbally denies Christ, the more his Galilean accent gives him away. They now have circumstantial evidence on Peter in a way. His accent would have been thick. Just like we'd recognize an accent from Minnesota, these people recognize a Galilean accent when they hear one. They recognize him as a Galilean, and here is Peter claiming to know nothing about the most widely known Galilean of his time. Jesus, there'd be no other reason for Peter to be there at that place at that time than that he was with Jesus as a Galilean. But Peter in verse 60 denies his association with Christ for a third time saying, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And here in this account, we have a picture of compromised discipleship. Peter, the rock of the church, remember a few chapters ago, Jesus called him the rock, is completely pretending like he doesn't even know Christ. The one who committed so much in private, he was so brave just with him and Jesus, wilts when it comes time to publicly commit to Jesus. 
Peter never would have denied association with Jesus up to this point. After all, he was getting what he wanted, right? He was following Jesus straight to glory. He he was getting the glory and the honor. Up to this point, following Jesus was beneficial and it was exciting. But now that the pressure is on, he disassociates himself with Christ. Peter now has only one God and it's his own skin. He hasn't stopped worshiping. He's just switched altars in a sense. Uh, Here we have Jesus' closest disciple denying him three times deliberately and with increasing emphasis. And all the time, Jesus is going through his time of greatest need. You see Jesus get lonelier and lonelier as the night proceeds and his disciples fall away. Stop and think about this for a minute. The rock of the church, Christ's closest disciple, is painted as an utter failure in this passage. And if you're trying to get a whole lot of people to follow Jesus, why in the world would you put this in the story? Why would you put this in the Bible? I mean, we'd edit it. If we were in charge of creating the Bible, we would, we would cut this part out, right? We need people to respect Peter after all. He's about to start the church. We need Peter, uh, we need people to, to look up to Peter, but here it is, Peter failing miserably, Peter, Peter failing so appealingly to all those who fail too. And this is what's known in historical studies as the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. If you see the authors of a particular work include embarrassing accounts of themselves, it's further proof that the account you're reading is truthful. Why include this if it wasn't true? Why highlight the failures and disappointments of the earliest church leaders? I like how one commentator put it when he said this, the public record of the brazen denying of one's master by the most prominent disciple in the church is not good recruitment material for the church. Yet all four gospels place this denying prominently in their records, giving each gospel a certain credibility for candor. But the disciples don't hide their flaws, their failures, their misunderstandings when they write. After all, there's only one hero in this story. There's only one hero. There's only one person who doesn't fail. Only one person who is out without flaw and failure. And it was the one that Peter is denying in this passage. But we can't judge Peter. We can't look down our noses at him. Because if it can happen to him, if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to us too. We've all done the same thing. We've all denied knowing Jesus. Maybe not explicitly like Peter does here in this passage, but we've all done it implicitly. Every single one of us has all functionally denied Christ at different times in our lives. Like Peter, it normally happens when following Jesus is no longer in our best interest at the time. It happens in our lives when what we want doesn't align with the relationship with him. It doesn't mesh with that relationship. It happens when, we, when we'd prefer Jesus not to be around. We, we want to do what we want, so we forget about Jesus for a bit when it comes to what we look at on the computer. Or we forget about him when it comes to how we spend our money. Or we wish he'd just be a little bit further out of the picture when it comes to how we treat our bodies. Or when it comes to what we'll do to get ahead. Just like Peter, when the pressure is on, we're prone to disassociate ourselves from Christ. We've all denied them, sometimes in bigger ways, but more often than not in smaller everyday ways. We can understand Peter. 
And now the question is, what happens next? And if you haven't been listening up to this point, I'd love for you to start now. What happens with Peter after he denies his relationship with Jesus? Well, we see that even in the midst of denial, Jesus is already beginning the process of restoration. The beginning of restoration happens before the third denial is even out of Peter's mouth. In verse 60, Luke makes a point to say that while Peter was still speaking his third denial, the cock crowed. The rooster crowed. Remember just a few hours earlier, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed that night. And well, at his third denial, the rooster crows. And Peter's mind is taken back to what Jesus predicted. And this crow of the rooster would have been a call that reminds Peter of his frailty, of his failure, of his neediness. The early church would say that for the rest of his life, Peter wasn't able to hear a rooster crow without tears in his eyes. It was a call to repentance. And once the rooster crows, we get a detail from the gospel of Luke that isn't in any other gospel And I love it. We see it in verse 61. It says that after the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. He looked at Peter. Now, most biblical scholars speculate that Jesus was being moved perhaps from one part of the high priest's house to another, maybe walking in a breezeway, and he's able to connect with Peter through eye contact in that moment. And the question I have for you this morning is this. What did this look of Jesus convey? How you answer that question is so important. What did that look from Christ to Peter convey? It reveals a lot about how you think of God. Was this a look of disgust? Did Jesus lock eyes with Peter? Was it a look of disappointment? Was it a look of judgment? Or maybe it was a look of love. A look of forgiveness. A look of grace. When the pressure gets to you, when you crumble, when you brush Jesus under the rug in a conversation with a friend or pretend like you don't know him in the office or choose to ignore him so you can do what you feel like doing. And after you've blown it and your eyes relock with Christ, what does the look of Jesus communicate to you? How you answer that question says so much about how you view Jesus and how he relates with you. Is Jesus disgusted with who you are? Filling you with shame? Is is the look one of disappointment that you would forget about him? Are Jesus' eyes full of judgment towards your struggles? Or does Jesus look at you in all of your failure and all of your disappointment with a look of love? What you believe about the look of Jesus towards you has the ability to change your life has the ability to set you free from the inside out. Is it possible that when Jesus locked eyes with Peter, it was a look of love, of compassion, of forgiveness? Is it possible that Jesus was thinking about where he was going, even in that moment to the cross and reassuring Peter with this look that it's even for this denial that I'm willing to die for you. And we're going to meet again. Well, this look of love crushes Peter's spirit because he realizes just what he's done. It's the love and grace of God that leads us to repentance. It's not his look of judgment. It's not his look of shame. It's the look of love that drives us 
to repent from our sins and to turn back to him. We see this repentance begin in verse 62 where it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Now, this is a word that's used in other places for weeping over the dead. It's a word that expresses intense emotion. Upon understanding what he had done in the love of Jesus for him, Peter felt intense remorse. He realizes what he'd forfeited. And this breakdown taught Peter just how powerless and needy he was. Peter, the rock of the church, experienced pressure just like me and you, and he disassociated himself from Christ. And if Peter's life doesn't show us that the deepest possible forgiveness for sins is offered, then whose life does? Even though we deny Jesus when the pressure gets turned up, Jesus refuses to deny us no matter how high the pressure got. We're going to celebrate that this week as we celebrate his crucifixion for us. We're always on his mind. He's always faithful to us, even unto death. While we're prone to distance ourselves from Jesus, he never distances himself from us. While we're unfaithful, he always remains faithful. And it's his faithfulness and his love towards us, even in the midst of our failures, that leads us to repentance and brings us life. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning for your grace and your love. We confess that oftentimes as we think about you and our failures, we believe that you're ashamed of us. We believe that you're disappointed in us. We believe that you're silently judging us. But that's not the story that the gospel tells. The story the gospel tells is that you are one who has come in order to love us and to extend forgiveness and grace to us even in the midst of our failures. And so we pray this morning that as we come to this table, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would show us your deep love for us. In Christ's name, amen.